Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's episode was sponsored by Nest Notes, which is a company founded by a mom named Chase Simmering, who's in Miami, and they create print keepsakes that tell stories, which as you all know, stories are like my favorite thing, whether they're family stories or stories of the places we call home. So shop kids stationery and paper goods and little journals and all the rest um, at this amazing company, nestnotes.com. I'm here today with Bruce Feiler, who's the author of six consecutive New York Times bestsellers, including The Secret of Happy Families, Walking the Bible, and Cancel of Dads, which is becoming a show on NBC. His upcoming book is called Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change in a Non-Linear Age. He's known as one of America's most popular voices on contemporary life. He's the host of two primetime series on PBS, and his two TED Talks have been viewed more than two million times. A native of Savannah, Georgia, Bruce lives in Brooklyn with his wife and twin daughters. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My pleasure. As a dad who doesn't have time to read books, I feel right at home. (laughs) We're all the same people. I know. I feel bad always calling it moms. You know, it's not just for moms. It's really for anyone who's busy, anybody who caretakes. But I figured, you know, if I got the whole mom market, that wouldn't be too shabby. So, <laughs> Well, my wife and I have to say, my wife and I have a saying that when we see somebody do something ham-handed in public and like stick their foot in their mouth or say something obnoxious on social media, we say, that person needs a wife. And about half the time, that person is a woman. But like the wife is the one who says like, 
are you kidding? Don't say that in public. So we'll think of moms in a gender beyond the binary way. How about that? I love that. Gender beyond the binary, moms don't have time to read books. That has a nice <laughs> ring to it. That's it. <laughs> Anyway, I have been a fan of yours, by the way, for a very long time. I love your writing. I was so excited when I heard you wanted to come on this podcast. And so I'm really delighted to be talking to you today, especially about your new book, which I don't know when this episode will air, but... As we're doing the interview, I just have to say we are in the midst of the quarantine for coronavirus. And so the idea that I get to talk to you about transitions when you have literally written the book on transitions is like a personal blessing for me. So would you mind just starting by telling listeners what your most recent book is about? Well, I'm happy to do that. And thank you for your kind words. But let me just begin by by just saying let me just reciprocate and say how much of not just a fan that I am, but really what a public service you're doing for all of us and what a a mission it is to bring writers and readers together in this world. So I just want to salute you and celebrate you and toast to you and, and thank you for doing this. And I'm I'm I can assure you I'm more honored to be here than you are to have me. And as you say, I have stumbled into a kind of a fascinating life moment where I spent the last five years not thinking about pandemics and not thinking about job loss and financial anxiety and family disruption, but thinking about all of those and thinking about the sort of larger question of what happens when our lives get overturned in a big way. And just to kind of quickly go through the backstory, as you asked, so I I had what I've come to think of as a kind of linear life. I grew up in in Savannah, Georgia. I went to college. I this doesn't happen. I, I moved to Japan in the middle of my third year at Yale, and I started writing letters home of the "You're not going to believe what happened to me" variety. And when I got home six months later, everyone said, "I loved your letters." I was like, "Great, have we met?" And it turned out <laughs> that my grandmother had xeroxed them and passed them around, and they went viral in a kind of old-fashioned sense of the word. And I thought, well, I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone who had ever written a book, and it doesn't happen this way, but one thing led to another, and I sold my first book at uh, 24, now 30 years ago. And in my 20s, I wrote books about Japan and England and country music. I spent a year as a circus clown, as you know. And then in my 30s, I went back and forth to the Middle East and wrote a series of books, Walking the Bible, being the most famous of them, and made television. And this was my life. And I I think of it as linear, as I said, because I I stumbled early on into a way of living my life. I was not that successful. Then I found some success. I got married. I had children. But then in my 40s, I had a back-to-back-to-back set of nonlinear experiences. First, as you know, at 43, I was diagnosed with a rare aggressive form of bone cancer in my left leg. That was 2008. And at the same time, my family was hit hard by the recession. And then a few years later, we had kind of the biggest family tragedy of all. My father was suffering from Parkinson's, as you know, and he was never depressed a minute in his life, but Parkinson's affects your mood. And he tried to kill himself six times in 12 weeks. And, you know, there's a lump in my throat even just telling the story. And we were dealing with business and medical and all the the ways you were dealing with it. But but I'm the story guy and I've been this meaning person my whole life and I kind of like running into the fire in a kind of way. I like seeking out pain in a certain way. And one Monday morning I sat down and I did something kind of instinctual. I sent him a question about his life. Like, tell me about the house you grew up in, you grew up in as a boy. And then it was, tell me about the toys you played with. And he would answer these questions like a few paragraphs, a page, two pages. 
And I kept going, and this went on for years. Tell me about you know, how'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you join the Navy? How'd you meet mom? Until this man who had never written anything longer than a memo backed into writing an autobiography. And it was the most powerful transformation any of us had ever seen. And I became obsessed with how when our lives get changed in some way that we kind of have to rewrite or update or retell the story of who we are. And I told this story, you and I were talking before we began this conversation at my 30th college reunion. And that night, person after person came up and told me a similar story. My wife had a headache and went in the hospital and died. My daughter tried to cut and kill herself. My boss stole money from me. I'm being sued for malpractice. And everybody was saying the same thing, like the, the life I'm living is somehow not the life I expected. Like I'm living life out of order in some way. And I called my wife, Linda, and I said, look, I'm sitting on this story. No one knows how to tell their story anymore. And I don't know what the solution is, but I have to figure this out. And what I did, as you know, is I went off and created this thing that I came to call the Life Story Project. And over the span of several years, I crisscrossed the country, gathering hundreds of stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states. There's actually a funny story about that. One day I was bragging to my wife. I said, I think I can get 25 states. Oh, late at night and she walked in the room and she said, get all 50 or shut up and walked out the room. And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. So then I sort of became very obsessed with like getting demographics and all over the country. And I ended up with this huge trove of stories. And then, you know, I did something that I've never done, which is I sat down to analyze them. And that sort of produced the ideas that became Life is in the Transitions. I mean, don't stop. This is great. <laughs> well, so I've never done this, right? I had I I had all of these stories here, right? They were I had them transcribed. Essentially, in the internet, you know, we're doing this on the internet today. You can now get transcriptions all over the world. So I use these services, and and like you know, I had six thousand pages. Like my, it, you stack together, it was like came to the shoulders of my adolescent twin daughters, and I got a team of like a dozen people in my office here in Brooklyn, and we spent a year coding these stories for 57 different variables. High point, low point, turning point, and it quickly became apparent that what we had stumbled on was information about the number and pace and kinds of ways our lives are upended. And then we sort of dug in to try to figure out, are there patterns, themes, takeaways that we can identify that can help people navigate these big life I call them life quakes, as you know, these big life changes in a, in, a, in a more systematic and kind of helpful way using sort of best practices that everybody else has when some of which they stumble onto and some of which they do intentionally, ways of getting through these kinds of life changes. And one of your main points is that the linear life, which you said you had had at the beginning that many had become accustomed to, that's just not a thing anymore, that we have to be prepared for different the different shapes and the different rhythms our lives will take. And that's part of managing the transitions is sort of anticipating them. Yeah, so let me let me geek out a little bit, you know, with you because I know you can go there with me and everybody listening can because this is an idea that I had never thought about. But once I thought about it and kind of went digging through kind of dusty library books, turns out to have been a conversation that people have had for centuries that we simply don't have anymore. And that conversation is that our lives take certain paradigmatic shapes. So in the ancient world, they didn't have linear time, right? So there was no clocks or anything, so they thought life was a cycle to every season, turn, turn, turn. In the Middle Ages, it turns out, people began to see linear time gets introduced and they thought that life was a staircase up to middle age and then a staircase down. And as you know, in, in the book, Life is in the Transitions, I have all these kind of graphic illustrations of this. 
and you think about this is not how we were raised in the 20th century. So that 40, you peak at whatever it is, we'll call it 40. There's no new love at 50. There's no new career after your children leave the house. There's nothing. You peak and then it's downhill and everybody is forced to live that. And essentially, for the last 150 years since the birth of science, we have been told that life is a linear arrow of progress, right? So you've got Freud saying there are these various stages. You've got Piaget saying children go through stages. You've got Erickson saying there are these eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief, the hero's journey. All of these things are very linear constructs. And this reaches its peak in the 70s with this book that our mothers all read. Gail Sheehy said, we're going to go through passages. And what passages says, it's amazing. It literally says the predictable crises of adult life. Everyone does the same thing in their 20s. Everyone does the same thing in their 30s. And everyone has a midlife crisis at 39 and a half. And that literally popularizes, that book sells 20 million copies. That defines this idea. It turns out that's all bunk, that this is not how we live now. And we've kind of known it instinctually and what's going on here is it's basically the way we look at the world affects the way we look at our lives. Now we know that life is chaotic and it's disruptive and there are changes, but we haven't updated how we think of our lives, okay? So what my data turned out to show in this big year of analytics that we did was, so the linear life is dead. That's the first point, as you said. It's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life, and that includes a lot more disruption. So my data show we have 36 disruptions around in our life. That's one every 12 to 18 months. It could be small like a car accident, right? Or, you know, a major surgery. It could be a big diagnosis. It could be, it's having a child. It's having a child leave the home. Most of these we get through. We're pretty good at adjusting and responding to this kind of change. But one in 10 of them become massive life reorientations, okay? I call these things life quakes. We have three to five in the course of our lives. And I would say the signature finding from the Life Story Project is that the average length of these life quakes, I feel like I'm, I almost should ask you, like, if you, how many you've been through and what they, what they are, but you know where this is going because you've read the book, is five years. For three quarters of us, it takes four years or longer. And you think three to five in a life, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. Half of our adult lives, we are in transition in one way or the other. And my book unveils essentially the first new model for navigating life transitions in 50 years. There has not been a book about this since the late 70s, a book called Transitions. And it turns out we're all doing this. We don't have a language for it. That was part of my goal. And it turns out the book is now going to appear in the middle of what is a massive worldwide situation, lifequake, where we're all going through one of these transitions at the same time. You must have planned that. I mean, what's interesting, there is a tiny paragraph in my book where we broke down the biggest transitions in everyone's lives on a metric, one of those two-by-two two metrics. And the two poles were personal and collective. So a personal one would be death in the family or finding out you have a child with special needs or losing your job. Collective is an earthquake, a hurricane. I grew up in hurricane country, pandemic. And then the other pole was voluntary or involuntary. So voluntary might be getting married or getting divorced if you're the one who's choosing to get divorced. Involuntary means being told <laughs> to your spouse <laughs> you, or firing your job. Voluntary may be starting a new enterprise as you've done in recent years. Involuntary may be losing your legs in an accident. And we made this grid, as you know, it's in the book, and the smallest category was involuntary collective. Okay? So an earthquake, a hurricane, a recession— the biggest involuntary collective 
uh, that came up in my conversations was 9-11. A lot of people choosing to reorient their lives. As you know, there's a story in my book. I interviewed this woman who's a professor at NYU, and she presented as a man before 9-11. And, and she said, I'd rather live without my family, without my friends, than not be true to myself. And that was the trigger that, in, that gave her the permission to go through a gender transition process. Lots of people you know, moved out of town, <laughs> rediscovered religion, changed jobs because of 9-11. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, okay, involuntary, like 3% of people had involuntary collective transitions that they identified in these conversations. Remember, I've, I've done a thousand hours of interviews. And so I write this paragraph that says, had I done this in the 20th century, that would have been a lot higher. We had two world wars. We had the Great Depression. We had women's rights and civil rights and all these things. And I was like, okay, we clearly are in a time where we're kind of me-oriented and not we-oriented. Boom. Here we are, an involuntary collective transition that everybody is going through at the same time, not just you know, in this country, but around the world. And I actually think that that aspect of this has actually not been talked about a lot, that what is it like now to actually have the connection of going through a transition? Transitions tend to be kind of lonely-making experiences, right? Because we feel like, oh, only us can go, woe is me, and everybody else's life is wonderful on social media, and I'm suffering. But now we're all going through this together, which actually, in a kind of way, may end up making it somewhat easier. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything it might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11, and it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Moms Don't Have Time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
dot com slash moms don't have time. I think there's going to be a lot of really good life quake turning point type material that comes out of this, even just from the couple of weeks of isolation. <laughs> I can already feel like things that I want to do differently afterwards. And I'm sure everybody feels the same way. Give me an example. I feel like my parenting has changed so much. I have four kids at home and there are things I used to be so concerned about. I think I tried to exert control over having lots of rules and screen time this and blah, blah, blah. You know, everything had to be like in its place and baths had to be this. And I really wanted dinner at a certain time and like things had to go according to schedule. And I've just let all that go. And I, the kids just do so much more for themselves. And if they watch screens, fine. I mean, I don't know. I've just like relaxed on the whole thing and they still want to play and everything's fine. So I don't know. I just feel like I will be a different type of parent I know, going forward, I, I will not go back. And even things like what they eat, I don't know, I don't, mean, I don't want to go on. But like, you know, I, I feel like my biggest concerns right now is the food supply situation. Like, I'm just so concerned that there's not going to be able to, I'm not going to have access to food. <laughs> so now I feel very different about mealtime. And I, and I feel like I always will, <laughs> you know, anyway. So here's, here's my reaction to that. Okay, so back to this shape things, right? So I stumble into this idea I find it electrifying that our lives have a kind of shape and expectation. And so I then ask, as you know, the, the last question, I did these two three-hour interviews, and the, la- and the first question was, tell me the story of your life in 15 minutes, and most people took an hour, and that was great. And then I would dig, then I would do high point, low point, turning point, and then I would dig into like how they got through the transitions, right? Tell me the biggest emotion that you struggled with, right? Did you have any rituals that you did at the beginning of the transition, right? What habits did you shed? What new creative enterprises did you start? What kind of advice from friends was most helpful. So I kind of was collecting all of this, this kind of raw data and these amazing, amazing stories. And then the last two questions, which were the ones that meant the most to me, were number one, looking back on your life in a different way, do you discern a central theme? And I have to say, I was kind of shocked how people just jumped out of their chair to say yes. And so I sort of then analyzed all these, you know, kind of which themes were most important. But then the last question was, what shape is your life? And I sort of asked it cold. No one kind of really knew that it was coming. And people's answers were mean. There were every, there were spirals, and there were lines, and there were flowers, and there were boxing gloves. I mean, and it was like amazing, and also like okay, just like two all over the place. And this was the hardest thing to analyze, and it took months to kind of figure out and identify, and then finally some kind of patterns popped into view, like the coins fell down the, I don't know, the slot machine or something, and then like the sevens came up, and we finally got it, and it turns out that people's shapes fell into three categories. And the first were people who said their life was some sort of a line, an up and down line, a squiggly road, a river, that was the lines. And then there was another that was a geometric shape, a circle, a house, a heart, and then the third was people who had an object. My wife is an object. She helps entrepreneurs, and so hers was a light bulb. She helps people with their ideas and bringing them to life. And it turns out that these three ideas correspond to what I have called the ABCs of meaning. Okay, the three th- pillars of what gives us identity. The A is agency. These are makers and doers and creators. B is belonging, right? That's the part of us that's family and friends and relationships. And the C is a cause, okay? That's a purpose, a calling, something that we do to give back. I call these the your me story, your 
we story and your the story. So, so the, uh, the famous circle in my memory was a woman who was an anorexic and couldn't get pregnant, and then adopted with had an accident, changed, and then with her husband had eleven adopted children from nine different refugee countries. And she said the shape of her life was a dented minivan, right? So that's <laughs> a circle in my point of view. But the point of going through this whole story is that we have these shapes. We all have all three shapes within us, and what happens when we go through a life quake? is that we tend to shape shift, okay? So maybe we've lost our job. That's our agency, right? And we spend more time with our family. That's our belonging. Maybe we've been a parent and we're an empty nester now and we want to do something for ourselves. We go from our belonging, you know, from our circle to our line. Maybe we've been giving back as a caretaker and maybe we're burned out and we want to do something else. So when I hear you saying you've been a rule-based mom, that's your agency kicking in, right? This is the control. These are the rules, right? You are done. And then you realize, okay, guess what? It turns out the belonging is more important. So it's natural in these moments to shape shift, to reevaluate our priorities. Maybe we've been home and like, do we want to still work 18 hours a day? Maybe we want to spend more time with our family. Maybe we are sick of our family <laughs> because we've all been moved up and we want to give back in some way. You know, we realize, you know what? We're just taking care of ourselves but we have to do something for humanity. So it's natural in these times of transitions to kind of, I think of it as instead of lady justice with the two, what's the word, dishes, mm -hmm. right? There are three dishes. And when we go through transitions, we kind of rebalance the, the pebbles, if you will, that we have in each dish. That's also happened to me, by the way. That's why I'm doing all this now is that I feel like I have to give back in some way and I have to like find meaning out of the chaos. Otherwise, like, how do I survive? So, but what about you? Like, how has this affected you personally? Or has your shape been so analyzed that it refuses to shift anymore? Have you, I feel like you, it's like a meta <laughs> shape right. inspector. You're I'm definitely, I'm a line. I'm a maker, you know, I've written 15 books and like, I'm a creator and that's what gives me meaning. I mean, and I think, I'm frankly, I'm one of those lines. It turns out, I think a lot of lines turn out to be this way, who was kind of shocked to realize that there were other shapes, right? And if you, <laughs> yeah. you said to me, what shape is them? Oh, it was an up and down line. And that was mostly graphed based on my own success. And it turns out when I would say to someone, what shape is your life? And they would say a heart. And I would say, oh, no, no, you don't understand the question. The question is like, how do you see your life? Does it go up and down? Depend and they're like, no, it doesn't go up and down. It's a heart. It's my relationships. And I don't care about the ups and downs because I, and it was so, I don't know. I don't know, humiliating is the wrong word, but it was so, I was so dense about the whole thing. So I would say that now that I'm aware of this, when I get too in my own head or too kind of definitional about looking at my life through the prism of my own, I don't know, accomplishments or creations or activities, then I sort of check myself and realize, okay, I need to make sure that I'm giving back. I'm also, I mean, one of the reasons that I'm somewhat prickly about the mom-dad thing is I'm also an incredibly involved dad, as you know, and I've had this, you know, having almost died and left my young children, there's a big part of me that's around dads and council of dads and all of these things. So this has, but my kids are now early teenagers. And so my thing is having to pull back a little bit, be, as you said earlier, be a little bit less hands-on and let them find their own way, which is hard for me. So I think it's, I would say I'm tweaking all three of the shapes in this current disruptive life quake that we're all in. I feel like you should do the dads don't have time to read books partner podcast to my podcast. I'm ready, actually. I love that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be I, fun? I absolutely love that. 
So in addition to expecting some shape-shifting, what else in a time of collective transition, involuntary, should we expect? What, what else comes from something like this? So let me say, first of all, to pick a nit for a second, is that let's go back to the voluntary involuntary. It turns out it was about almost 50-50. 53% were involuntary transitions and 47% were voluntary transitions, okay? And it was interesting. So I had all these, I shouldn't call them kids, these millennials, these young adults, (laughs) these graduates and graduate students in technology who were helping me analyze these stories. And when the data, you know, ping, ping popped up, that 53% of the, of the life quakes people experience in their lives are involuntary and 47 are voluntary. My reaction was, wow, 47% of the people choose their big life quakes, right? They choose to change religions, right? They choose to leave their marriages. They choose to leave a corporate job and start a nonprofit, right? They choose to be a stay-at-home mom and not go back to work, whatever it might be. That was my reaction. I was shocked how big the voluntary number was. For the kids in my midst, they were shocked how big the involuntary number <laughs> Shit, you mean I can't control my life that much? Like, 50, like the big, huge changes in my life? Because, of course, young people have the, the untested, for the, for the large part, you know, a lot of them grow up with addiction. I mean, one, four of my stories involved addiction in some way. So if you grow up with that, a lot of people are born into, into life quakes for disruptive families or divorce or addiction or poverty or whatever it might be. But their big reaction was how much of the big events in our life they can't anticipate. But the point is, it turns out that the toolkit is the same. I thought it would have been different for someone making a career change and someone facing cancer as I did or somebody who's trying to get sober. It turns out the, the toolkit is much more similar. So your question was what to expect. So number one, it's going to be similar. And I would say the following. The first thing I would say is that there are identifiable kind of phases that people go through, okay? So my names for these phases are the long goodbye, where you say goodbye to the old you, this messy middle where you are trying to figure out what it means to be unmoored in some way, and then there's the new beginning where you're launching your new self. Everything written about transitions in the last 100 years has said that these kinds of phases happen and must happen in order. Like first you must say goodbye, then you must go through the messy middle, then you go through, that turns out to be also BS. We, we kind of, each of us has a transition superpower and a transition kryptonite, okay? So maybe you're good at saying goodbye, like goodbye, I'm out the door, and then you're going to linger for a longer time in the messy middle. But a lot of people are bad at saying goodbye. Like they stick around far too long and they like the messy middle because that's charts and schedules. And to, my guess is you're a messy middle person, right? <laughs> that you, make, you make graphs and you make lists and you're going to accomplish it. So you, that's your superpower. I have like schedules. I have everything is typed. Everything is. <laughs> you are a master of the messy middle. But then, so what's your kryptonite? You're either bad at saying goodbye or you tarry in the middle too long, and maybe you're not good at unveiling it. So my guess is you're bad at saying goodbye. That would be my hunch, because you seem to be good at launching new things, because you you <laughs> a lot of new things in the last couple of years. So some people, people have a transition superpower and a transition. So don't expect to be good at everything, and don't expect to do them in order. And that's perfectly fine. My data show that people do them out of order. Then, so then I think you get into it, there are these tools that I have, like from the Turns out the kind of seven tools of navigating transitions. I'll just go through them quickly. We don't have time to go into all of them, but one is you need to, everyone's going to struggle. I mentioned earlier, what's the biggest emotion you, you, you struggle with in a transition? Top three were fear, number one. Two is shame. I was fascinated by that. I mean, no, excuse me, two is sadness. 
like grief or it's just sad. I see this with my kids. They're just sad about all the things that they're missing. You know, they're teenagers and they're not having the dance concert and they're not having this party and they're not going to see this Broadway show with their friends for their birthday. Like, like they're just sad a lot of the time. And then the shame, which is the shocking one to me, is number three. So you have to identify this emotion. I think that ritual is incredibly important. Marking the line that, I mean, I'm, you know, I've written a lot about religion and this interested me. I was shocked by this, but people do things. They get tattoos, they jump out of airplanes, they, they burn the old thing. They repaint their rooms. Well, there's something ritualistic that says that old thing is it's part of the saying of goodbye. So I'm having a hard time thinking about it, and that's okay. Other people have a hard time. Ritualize the saying goodbye in some way. Then you get into the messy middle, which is where a lot of us are now. And that turns out to involve two massive things. One is shedding. Shedding old habits, old clothes, maybe you've put on weight, it's maybe the skinny clothes, right? Or maybe you've exercised a lot, or maybe it's public recognition or dyeing your hair. I'm married to someone for that's a big deal right now. Or, (laughs) you know, you have to shed something. And it turns out some of those things are things that you like, but a lot of them are stuff that you don't like. You know, I actually, I mentioned to you before we started this conversation, I cleaned my little side office and you know what I shed? 10 years of unused computer cables that I was <laughs> I was keeping around in case I pulled out that old device and I wanted to get that picture off of it. And I just garbage bags full of stuff I shed this weekend. And then one of the most satisfying things that I discovered is that people turn out to instinctually turn to incredible acts of creativity. I mean, you see it now with on the on social media with the baking, right? I mean, how many people? Apparently, there's a run on yeast. Like everybody is taking. I can't up, get yeast. I can't get it. I was trying to make challah and I could not get yeast, so I made brownies. So, but yeah. Okay, so that is fascinating, right? So people and they didn't say I'm going to be creative, but yet there's something there's something ritualistic about baking. But there's also it's a creative thing. And I I heard people, stories of people who baked, people who painted tool houses. I'll tell you a a story of this guy, Zach, who grew, it was an African-American son of a crack baby who was adopted by a white family in Kansas, kind of drifted through his life, joined the U.S. military, ended up in Afghanistan. In his first months in Afghanistan, his face was blown off by the Taliban. He had 31 surgeries between the tip of his nose and the tip of his chin, including sewing his tongue back on. And so I'm having this conversation with Zach, and I say, you know, so tell me what happened. And he, by the way, suicide ideation, thinks his life is over. His mother gives up and moves, you know, to near where he's in recuperation in Virginia. And he tells me that his mother tells him one day, why don't you start cooking? He can't taste food. So he can't have spicy food. So he starts to cook and he's telling me these stories. He's starting to cook, okay? And he says the girls love it, right? And he has these specialties. He can make salmon and he can make lamb. And then he tells me that he starts to write poetry. And then he tells me he starts to paint by splattering paint on the canvas, okay? Now, I'm talking to you right now. You are probably not that far from where Jackson Pollock splattered a lot of that paint. And so he says to me, like, who's that painter who does that? Okay. But <laughs> a college high school dropout. And I say, Jackson Pollock? He said, yeah, like him. Like, I used to shoot bullets at the Taliban to get my anxieties out, and now I splatter paint. Like, wow. this is an amazing story of some. And I said to him, Zach, like, if you went to your high school self and said that you were going to cook and write poetry and paint, 
What would you thought? He, would have thought? he said, I would have thought it was stupid. But people turn to the most incredible acts of creativity, writing, journaling, as I said, baking, painting, dancing. I've talked to a woman who, who left her job as a tenured chemistry professor, an Asian American woman in Alabama, who then takes up ballet dancing in tutus because she'd wanted to do it since she was a child. So people turn to creativity. And then the last thing that they do So that's the messy middle, shedding and creativity. And the last thing they do is they slowly unveil the new self, which involves essentially rewriting your life story and then beginning to tell it to other people. Amazing. This is so interesting and so timely and so helpful. Now that this book, this book is coming out whenever it comes out. (laughs) What's your next big project? Have you, you must have like a lot of different balls in the air. I'm interested to hear. So a couple things. So first of all, I am working with a producer now to turn the Life Story Project and the book Life is in the Transitions into some sort of a television experience where we go and kind of recreate it. And I would say I have lots of ideas for television, for books and projects, but at the heart of all of them is the essence of what I've been doing the last five years, which is this incredibly old-fashioned thing of like, go and talk to people. You do it all day. Like, tell me the story of your life. It turned, and there's no greater drug than looking someone in the eye and saying, tell me the story of your life. But then the difference from what, say, Studs Terkel did or you know, even some of the other storytelling projects out there now is then this data analytics, like turning the, the stories into data and identifying patterns. So like the old-fashioned thing coupled with this newfangled thing. So a lot of the new stuff that I'm kind of conjuring up in my mind involves this core experience because I would say – one of the, again, blessed things that happened in this experience was, I don't know, 90% of the ideas that I uncovered were things that really had not been written about in the extensive literature that I was reading about, about how we get through life. So I feel like it's a great way to surface ideas, coupled with stories. And so I'm committed to the idea of, of collecting life stories. I love it. By the way, that's like my dream, just spending the day asking people about their lives. That's like... I can't think of nothing more interesting. <laughs> this is the reason that we have to do that's who don't have time to read books. Totally. With moms, because <laughs> I would go to my wife who has a busy job and we have teenagers and all this. And at the end of the night, I would I would like want to unfurl these stories. Like you just can't believe like the story that yeah. I heard today of this person that used to be a, you know, a white supremacist who now helps people get out of trans, you know, groups, or this people, woman who was a big corporate executive who now is a hypnotist. You know, I mean I would the stories were amazing and she just got to the point where it was too much for her. So there's a kind of Well just call me. I'm I'm totally <laughs> I'm totally interested. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? So my big advice for aspiring writers is to write. You know, I know, I mean, my way of thinking about this is I know a lot of aspiring writers who are much better at aspiring than they are at writing. And so (laughs) I I tell a story, which I've never told publicly in my book of when I was a freshman at Yale in the early 1980s. Somehow, like the second month, I managed to go to the art gallery and hear this talk from James Baldwin. He turned out to be near the end of his life. And someone raised his hand and asked the question that you just asked me, which is, do you have any advice for aspiring writers? And and let's go with Baldwin's answers as opposed to Filer's answers. He said, this is kind of in some ways quaintly old-fashioned now, he said, all you need to write is a table, a chair, a piece of paper, and a pencil. Meaning, sit your butt down, grab the pencil, and start writing. So that's my, don't worry that it has to be perfect, or they have to share it. My father, when I asked him that first question, tell me about the house that you grew up with, when I asked him that first question, tell me about the house you grew up in, he couldn't move his fingers. He had Parkinson's. He dictated his answer to Siri, and then Siri typed it out, and he began to edit it. 
He did this for five years until he wrote a 52,000-word memo, more or less without using his fingers, entirely in one- and two-page chunks. To me, that's my advice to aspiring writers. Write. Right, even with Siri. <laughs> just, just do the exercise and, and, and patterns. And we know, especially in difficult, the one thing that I have forced my teenagers to do against their better judgment was to journal. They're not instinctually drawn to that, but there is a lot of evidence that doing expressive writing, as it's called, you know, 20 minutes a day, three days in a row or whatever, will actually help you navigate whatever you're, whatever you're going through more easily. So it's the one thing that I've insisted my kids do in this time of quarantine. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on Moms and Have Time to Read Books and sharing all the stories of everybody you interviewed and all the tips to help us all through this. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again for doing this and for opening up your home and your heart to people who sit, sit alone by themselves and, <laughs> and want to have someone listen to their stories and keep telling your story, everyone. Aw, thanks. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to nestnotes.com for sponsoring today's podcast. Check them out for some amazing print keepsakes that tell your family stories. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.